Welcome back to another episode of The Hidden Spring with our guest, Mark Soames. Welcome back, Mark. Thank you. Hi. We're getting there, man. You've been bringing us on a journey. I've been going on the journey with the book. I was saying to you that this chapter was, was a, it took me a little while to get it, but I think you did a really good job of explaining the free energy principle. And I thought the way to start was self-organizing systems and the link to Friston, because his work really paved the way for you to, and how your model of reality started changing here and how you had this aha moment. Maybe that's a good place to start and correct me if I'm wrong. That's the, that's the right place to start. When we spoke uh, some episodes ago um, about uh, the brain stem and uh, the, the fundamental role of brainstem nuclei in the in the generating of consciousness and the realization that what it's generating is not some sort of blank wakefulness uh, but rather something which has a quality something which has a particular content being feeling that led me to become interested in the mechanism of homeostasis because what those brainstem nuclei are doing is trying to maintain homeostasis. That's long been known, you know, that the homeostasis is a completely basic biological mechanism. It's how we stay alive. And the fact that those same mechanisms, brain mechanisms that maintain homeostasis also generate feeling, you know, suggests that feeling has something to do with maintaining homeostasis. And uh, I've already gone over this ground before with you, but basically uh, the, the bottom line is that deviations from homeostasis feel bad and returning back to homeostasis feels good. Why? Because homeostasis uh, is, is necessary for life. So it's bad to head away from what is viable biologically, and it's good to head back to what is viable. And so the way that the organism becomes aware of whether what it's doing is good or bad for it is to feel it within this qualitative register um, of, of unpleasure and pleasure, as, as we call it. Um, so it wasn't hard to understand. Um, and in fact, others had had uh, explored the same territory before me. Uh, Jak Panksepp and uh, Antonio Damasio, perhaps above all others, had recognized that feeling was fundamentally homeostatic. These brainstem nuclei are homeostatic. So, you know, the feeling is just an extended form of homeostasis. Now, homeostasis is not a complicated thing. Uh, it's just saying, this is where I need to be. And if you link it to feeling, I would say, this is where I prefer to be. And uh, deviations from that feel bad. Um, and deviations, movements back to it feel good. Uh, that's the kind of thing, such a simple mechanism is the kind of thing you can reduce to a law, you know. And um, in fact, there is a law in psychology called the law of effect, uh, which basically says anything that is consistently punishing is avoided. And anything that's consistently rewarding uh, is approached. And so you seek to repeat uh, things which are intrinsically or repeat, repetitively, consistently rewarding, and you seek to avoid those things which are the opposite, which are punishing. Everybody, when I say that, everybody recognizes that. Well, of course, you know, I don't, I don't choose to do the things that feel bad, and I choose to avoid them, and I do choose to do the things that feel good. And the mechanism of homeostasis just tells us why that's so. But that law, uh, the law of effect. Uh, it, it can, because it's lawful, can ultimately be reduced to an equation. Um, and everything in science that's lawful can be reduced to an equation because an equation is just a formal way of describing the lawful relations. That's all it is. People are scared of equations, but that's all they are. You know, they're just formal, formalizing in abstract terms what the lawful relationships are. This equals that is what an equation is. And I said, this thing uh, is the same thing as this, 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 this. That's what an equation is. So it wasn't entirely surprising 
2013, uh, I read a paper in one of the journals of the Royal Society um, um, called Royal Society Interface. Uh, and uh, the, the paper was written by the man you mentioned earlier, Carl Friston. Um, what the paper was entitled was Life as We Know It. Um, and it was a reduction of homeostasis to an equation. That's that's all it was. It was it was it was writing the equation uh, that um, that 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 formally describes the laws of how homeostasis works, the mechanistic laws. Why I was, I mean, in a way, I should have. It's it's, it's to be expected that, that that such a thing can be done as what Friston did, but I was suddenly blown away by it because it was only then on reading this paper that it dawned upon me that if feelings are homeostatic and if homeostasis is such a simple mechanism that it can be reduced to an equation, then feeling can be reduced to an equation. You know, feeling obeys laws. And feeling is the basic form of consciousness. That means consciousness, this most mysterious of all things, you know, can in principle, can be reduced to mechanistic laws and therefore to an equation. So um, on that basis, I contacted Carl Friston and said to him, you know, maybe we should be working together because I think consciousness works homeostatically and you've reduced uh, homeostasis to an equation. Can we not extend your equations to to explain the basic laws of consciousness, which brings consciousness into ordinary natural science. And he said, yeah, sure, great, let's do it. And so that's what we did. Um, so that's an introduction to what we're talking about today. Um, homeostasis is the, is the linking concept between all the mathematics and physics that Friston uh, is uh, uh, engaged with and all the psychological stuff that feelings have given rise to, you know, all of the the, the, the bump in psychological literature, uh, you know, you would think these two worlds have nothing to do with each other, mathematics and physics on the one hand, uh, and feelings and psychology and, and, and all of that on the other hand, the link between them is homeostasis. I just wanted to help our audience just bring them on a journey to link it back to, we were talking about learning before, through reading this chapter and building on the earlier chapters, it made me realize, well, learning is almost a form of homeostasis in that failure makes me learn what's right. When I get what's right, I'm back on the homeostasis path. So it's it's almost like it reminded me of like a game of pinball, where I bang off to the side, and then I get back on the path again. And this is all homeostasis is the whole time, including things like addiction. So Addiction would be I, I take a hit of whatever the drug is, alcohol, sugar, some type of harder substance, and I go off homeostasis. And then but it has to come back to balance again. And that's actually where the problem happens, because I need more of the substance again to get back to, to zero again. You know, homeostasis is, is, is an incredible, incredible mechanism. It's so simple. Uh, uh, and yet it is the foundation of life. It's what distinguishes living things from non-living things. So, so uh, non-living things, they obey a law called the second law of thermodynamics, um, which, which states that in any natural process, entropy will always increase. Uh, and so very simple illustrations of that are if you leave a battery standing on a table, it will run down. That is entropy increasing. Um, if you roll a, a billiard ball on the billiard table, it will eventually come to a halt. That's entropy increasing. Um, if you have a pile of bricks or rocks uh, standing in the open air, uh, come back in a hundred or two hundred years, it will have then it will it will have fallen down. You know, things tend to equalize. A, a, a very good illustration of it is this. Uh, if you pour hot water into a cold bath, the hot water doesn't remain in a globule under the tap. Uh, it equalizes. It's, it, it evens out with the cold water. And so eventually the, the hot 
has equalized with the cold and there's you know that's that's entropy it's a it's a tending toward it's a, so a more organized process would be here's the hot here's the cold uh, and a more disorganized process a more entropic process it's the it's pivotal word is dissipation things dissipate in all of those processes that I all of those examples I've just given they're all examples of the second law of thermodynamics which is that things dissipate now living things can't afford to dissipate so uh, when i said that the hot water doesn't remain in the globule under the tap we do we living things we don't just equalize with our environment say so if i may stay with the example of temperature you know we the way that we measure it uh, in 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 britain uh, i know in america it's done differently but in britain uh, the the core body temperature of a human being must be between 36 and a half degrees and 37 and a half degrees celsius that's where you have to remain um, now uh, also in britain it's very seldom 37 degrees outside you know so you can't just equalize with your environment like that globule of hot water under the tap equalizes with the cold we are a globule of 37 degrees celsius we can't just equalize with the 10 degrees celsius that is the that is in the ambient surround so how does that happen? It, 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 is, it is resisting the second law of thermodynamics. It's resisting entropy. And that's what living things do. Living things don't just equalize. They need to be within certain viable bounds. And in order to stay within those bounds, they have to perform work. So living things work to resist entropy. And, 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 and homeostasis is just a description of that, that we work to remain within 36 to 37 and a half degrees Celsius. And um, the, we can't dissipate, we can't equalize, we can't just say, okay, shit, it's 10 degrees, or so I'm gonna be 10 degrees too. You know, it's like, no, 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 I gotta resist this, I gotta stay in, these are my viable, and it really is, you know, don't forget, if you were to become 10 degrees, you'd be dead, you know, uh, as would we all. So it's it's not a it's not a just a preference and it's an absolute imperative and living things do that that's how they maintain their organization that's how we stay within our skins how within our skins we stay within the temperature range that's possible uh, for, for us to remain in our skins we stay within the blood pressure range uh, the oxygenation range etc cetera, etc cetera. that's what living things do they work to resist entropy i thought of a great metaphor when i was reading this and it, it's that to tie this back to the innovation show and innovation and people working in change literally that's what happens in an organization it starts off as a startup but then it starts to dissipate it starts to entropy and it needs new energy and new thinking and new people and those change makers are almost the metabolizers to keep it alive, to keep the energy in the system so it doesn't just stagnate and dissipate. And I, I just wanted to share that because I, I, it's a good way to understand entropy. It's a very good example. In fact, I'm going to use that example. Uh, it, there are two aspects to what you've just said. Um, and I want to... I want to uh, separate out those two aspects in order to illustrate the points that I'm now going to make. So if you deviate from your viable bounds, in other words, if you're moving out of the range that's viable for you, which by the way, feels bad, so that's where feeling comes into it, then you have to do something that will bring you back into your viable bounds. And how do you know what to do? So uh, you have to have a prediction. You have to you have to be able to say, okay, well, given what I know about how the world works and how I my body works, uh, and you don't have to know this consciously, but given what I know about how the world works and how my body works, this is the thing to do to bring me back into my viable bounds. Um, so we need predictions. The work that I did with Friston about homeostasis and the laws governing homeostasis, uh, a, a pivotal part of this work had to do with predictions. So the more predictable a situation is, uh, the less dangerous it is for an organism. 
the more unpredictable the situation is, uh, the more dangerous it is. So homeostasis has to do with predictability. And and uh, if it, I hope that's just sort of self-evidently true. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we need to have, it needs to be predictable how to get into this state. And to the, to the extent that life is becoming, or the situation is becoming more unpredictable, to that extent, entropy is prevailing. And, and that means that I'm at risk of expiring. So there's this predictive model, as we call it. Now, to, to link with what you've said about organizations. So an organization has to have policies or plans or philosophies or you know, a, a, a business plan is this is how we, what, what we're doing. This is our unique selling point. You know, this is how we stay competitive. In other words, stay within our viable bounds. In other words, continue to survive as a business. And so you develop a policy and you say, okay, we do this. We always do this. Whenever that happens, we do this. Until when you do this, it doesn't actually bring you back within your viable bounds. So that's the stagnation that you were talking about. In order to try to maintain predictability, you've developed a policy uh, which is meant to maintain predictability, but actually it turns out the world changes. Uh, you know, the world is not so easy to predict. And so, you know, now you start, uh, whenever you execute your policy, uh, it doesn't work. What do you do? That stagnation. At that point, your your survival is threatened because you have a policy that no longer works. So what you have to do then is you have to update your policy. You have to change your policy. In the case of us, we have to change our minds. And by the way, it's a very unpleasant thing to find yourself in an uncertain situation and to realize you're wrong. Your policy doesn't work. We can resist. People resist that. You know, but to their detriment. So you have to suffer this short-term, not chaos so much as uncertainty, uh, in order to develop a better policy. So homeostasis, which is the simple reflex when it comes to bodily processes, the most simple bodily processes, when it comes to the more complex things that the life of the mind is dealing with, like how the hell do I know what to do in this situation in order to get myself to safety or in order to get myself lucky sexually or in order to return to uh, you know my 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 uh, 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 attachment object you know if I've become separated and so on I need predictions as to how to do that and if my predictions don't work then that that leads to what's called prediction error uh, which means increasing entropy remember I said it relates to probability so it, the situation is becoming increasingly improbable and it's incre- increasingly unpredictable increasing empathy, I mean, entropy, which is increasing uncertainty, which feels bad to us. So you see these deep regularities in all of this. So what you then have to do is you have to update your predictive model, which means you've got to consume information. You know, you've got to, you've got to ask questions of the world uh, and say, well, you know, what, what do I do here? Let me try this. Let me try that. Let me try the other thing. That's testing out hypotheses in order to develop new predictions. And that's one of the most fundamental things that the mind does. So when I spoke earlier about the law of effect, you know, that you repeat those things which feel good and you, and you, and you, you, you do the opposite with those things that feel bad. It just means that you're learning uh, what brings you back into homeostasis and what doesn't through and learning is just updating your predictive model. So Friston's work, which is all about statistical physics, which sounds like something horribly daunting, is just about that. It's about learning from experience what works and what doesn't work, and it doesn't always stay the same. So, you know, when you find yourself in a new situation, you have increasing uh, unpredictability, and so you have to then update your predictive model. You have to learn from the experience. So unlike simple reflexes, when it comes to the life of the mind, it's not just I have a reflex. It's that, well, I had a, a prediction. Uh, I had an automatic response, but it's no longer working. And so we creatures in, 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 uh, uh, who are fortunate enough to have minds, in other words, to have brains which are capable of learning from experience, uh, I change my mind and I update my model and I do something different. So that's the basic mechanism 
uh, I, 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 there's something more I need to tell you about it mathematically, but I'm going to leave the mathematics aside for now. But just let me put down a place marker. There's something more I need to tell you about that mathematically. But for now, you know, let's just stick with that. And so the, the free energy principle, which is what this episode is about, it just means the following, that to the extent that my predictive model, in other words, what I've learned, which I'm implementing, the thing that is the thing that is meant to bring me back into my into viability, um, that to the extent that what I'm doing is not bringing me back to viability, to that extent, my free energy is increasing. Free energy just means average prediction error. Okay, and that means my entropy is increasing. The, the unpredictability is increasing. My risk of dissipating is increasing. I'm not able to stay in that as that globule under the tap. I'm starting to even out with the with the rest of the water. Uh, how, uh, what I'm doing isn't enabling me to maintain my separate existence. So I need to do something different. That means I need to reduce my free energy. So what is free energy? It is you, there's a certain amount of energy in every system. And that's got to do with the first law of thermodynamics. I'm not going to I'm not going to bother our, our our audience with all of the mathematics and physics details. But uh, there is a certain amount of energy in every system. That energy is deployed in work. Remember, we have to do work to get back to our viable bounds. Things that don't do work, like non-living things, they just dissipate. We got to do work to stay in a certain range. We're not happy to dissipate. So the work that we're doing is efficient work and is inefficient work. In other words, there's work that succeeds and there's work that doesn't succeed. The work that the mind performs is predictive work. And I hope you can see why I'm saying that. The mind is just a prediction machine. It's learning in relation to feelings what works and what doesn't work. And so to the extent that what we're doing doesn't work, to that extent, it's inefficient. To that extent, that there's energy that is free. There's energy that is not being bound into effective work. Free energy just means energy that is being wasted, uh, energy that needs to be deployed more efficiently. And so this very abstract, very um, uh, daunting notion of free energy, which is based in physics and mathematics and so on, it just means that. It means it's inefficient. It's a system that's inefficient. It's wasting energy. Here, the energy we're talking about is informational energy. It's energy that has to do with prediction. These are inefficient predictions. These predictions are not working effectively. So I need to change them. In other words, I need to reduce the free energy. Why, we, why do we have to link this all to something so abstract as free energy? It's because this is, these are the basic concepts of physics which apply to everything. They don't apply only to minds. They apply to all self-organizing systems. They apply to the whole of the universe. And so this is how we bring consciousness into natural science. We're saying there's a basic law here. This is a law which we're not just making up. It's a law that the whole of nature has to obey. Um, and the free energy principle links this kind of work that we do in the mind, which gives rise to bad feelings when, when the work is unsuccessful and good feelings when it's successful, it, it obeys the same laws as the rest of nature does. Uh, and so that concept, free energy, is just making that abstract connection between the, the basic law of physics that's being obeyed by the mind uh, is a basic law of physics that, obey, that is obeyed by everything else in the universe. So we make we use the term in order to make the connection, in order to show other natural scientists what we're talking about. The free energy principle, which is Friston's basic principle, just says that the mind operates to minimize free energy. The brain operates to minimize free energy. In other words, the, the basic principle governing the whole thing is how do I develop the most efficient predictions? That is to say, the predictions that are most likely to meet my needs, which is to say, the predictions that are most likely to keep me alive. That, that's that's the fundamental law upon which the whole of psychology uh, and 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 dare I say psychiatry is based. Because when you're not able to do that, you feel bad. 
and psychiatric disorders uh, are emotional disorders. They are forms of emotional distress when our basic emotional needs are not being met. So uh, the, the, the free energy principle has incredibly sweeping applicability from clinical psychiatry all the way through to basic physics. And it's, that's the reason why you know, we are so excited about this development, that we're beginning to see the basic, basic structure of how the mind works and how it fits into the rest of the natural world. I'm trying to make sure, right? I'm simplifying it for me, and you're doing a, You've done a magnificent job, and in the book, you do a magnificent job because I had a few of those kind of threshold moments where I had breakthrough moments. And I went, ah, okay. And you bring us on that journey, like the globule of water, etc. Those analogies. The, the way I, I kind of thought of it as well was if you just think of any of us that the weekend comes, I want to chill out on the couch. <laughs> I, I have been expending energy working or working out, etc. But then I lie on the couch. And it's almost like I start to entropy, I my muscles start to atrophy, if I don't get off the couch and go and do something again, if I spend too much time, or even going to bed every day. And I thought about how linking it back to some of the things we talked about before, you, we create cortisol in the morning in order to get us out of bed to get us to do something. And actually, the whole concept of stress of uh, is a good thing from a from a homeostasis perspective, because it's like kind of going, you should be doing something or you have that thing on your list, release some cortisol, make me feel uncomfortable in order for me to do something to expend energy to get me back to homeostasis again. So that was one thing. And then I went, well, that's exactly what happens in an organization, you have these change makers or change agents within the organization, they're almost like the cortisol <laughs> saying, something needs to change here, or else we're going to atrophy as an organization, we need a new business model. And that's the new update of the mental model for an individual, in order to get back to zero or to keep our competitive advantage. And I just wanted to check in with you to go, is that a apt metaphor to bring to life this whole concept? It is an apt metaphor, but in fact, you've covered a number of things there. So let me go through them step by step. First of all, the idea, you know, well, I'm tired, I'm going to rest. Uh, I, I feel like loafing for a few minutes. Uh, you say, well, that's increasing entropy. It is and it isn't. Uh, and here's one of the reasons why life is difficult. Uh, it's because we have multiple needs. So on the one hand, you have, to, to put it at, at its simplest, you have to carry on working in order to meet your nutritional needs. You know, you need to go out there and get food if you're an animal. But what we do, you know, we go do our jobs in order to earn money, in order to get food, among other things. You know, so there's this work you have to do in order to meet your, your nutritional needs. But at the same time, you have a need for rest. So, you know, while you're busy, while you're busy, balancing your budget in terms of your of, of what you need in terms of energy supplies, you're busy going into overdraft in terms of what you need in terms of rest, because we have multiple homeostats, because we have multiple needs. And so we have conflict. You know, so on the one hand, you 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 know you know you need to get back to work. On the other hand, you know you're tired. So you meet this need up to a certain point, then you prioritize the other one again. Then you meet this one. And sadly they're not just two. There's a really a large number. Um, so this is what the great task of life is about, is first of all, balancing all of these different needs, and secondly, learning how to meet each one of them and, 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 and how to meet them in ways that, are, that minimize the conflicts between them. You know, so to find, so, so that's the one thing I wanted to say. It's about, you know, it, it's, it's about uh, uh, the, the multiplicity of needs. Uh, then the, you were speaking about innovation and disruption and so on in the business situation. Uh, it, it, it kind of links to the multiplicity of needs, uh, and, and it does in the following way. You could say, well, which I think is worth saying, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. You know, so you've got a predictive model. In other words, you've got a business plan. You've got a, you've got a, you know, your, your how how your business is surviving, how your organization is surviving within the jungle of, of the particular field that you're in. And it's not broken. So let's not fix it. Why disrupt the whole thing? 
Well, I'll tell you one reason why is because it helps to have a proactive plan. In the future, this is not going to work anymore. I don't want to find out in the future that my plan doesn't work. Uh, let me try and anticipate the future and adjust my plan so that when the future happens, I'm ready for it. Uh, this is not something unknown to business people. You know, you've got to do that. It doesn't help to just rest on your laurels. And the mind works the same way. So when I said there's a multiplicity of needs, uh, we've got a specific need in the human brain, and actually it applies to all mammals. Uh, it's a thing called the seeking drive. And remember, each drive is a homeostat. A drive just means there's a need, and I'm moving away from meeting that need. Uh, so each one of these drives works that way, and seeking is one of them. Seeking is a very peculiar drive, which is its homeostatic settling point, is it is engaging, it is positively engaging with what is unknown, with what is uncertain. So it actually needs to engage with uncertainty. Uh, if it's not engaging with uncertainty, in other words, if it's not if it's not disrupting, then it feels bad in terms of that need. It feels boring. It feels static. It feels stagnant. That's the feeling, literally. It's a kind of like you know, like a a, a kind of inert, listless, apathetic uh, 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 that kind of feeling. And you feel good when you are learning something new and engaging with something novel and so on in terms of that drive. And the, the reason we have such a drive uh, is precisely the situation that I've just described, that it's it's good to engage with what's uncertain, with what you don't know, uh, like the future, uh, in order to be able to be prepared for it when it comes at you, because it's going to. So you positively engage with uncertainty so as to reduce uncertainty in the long run. And so that's one of our basic drives. I mean, the and, and listen, what I'm saying is not philosophy. There's, there's like oodles of evidence that there's a drive in the human brain driven by dopamine that works exactly like I've just said. Uh, and it's, it's, it's the brain's disruptor. It's the novelty seeker. It's the, you know, it's, it's, it's the thing that engages with uncertainty, that takes risks. Obviously, that can be done badly and it can be done well. So you need predictions about how best to deal with this need to engage with uncertainty. To link it to psychiatry, an extreme form of engaging with uncertainty is called mania. You know, it's uh, it's too much optimism, too much novelty seeking, uh, too much hyper distractibility, too much expectation that you know everything new is good and and it's all going to turn out great. It's not true. Um, and uh, the, while saying that, linking with psychiatry, the opposite is depression, as I was saying earlier about lethargy, you know, and so on. So I'm sorry, I'm probably meandering a little this bit is awesome. all over the place. Awesome, absolutely awesome. And because you're actually explaining it really, really well in language of the realm in which many of our listeners work, which will really help them understand it. Because even to a point of many people, we've, we spoke about this before in a previous episode about dopamine, that just like somebody might be manic, it's because of an excess of seeking and that means they're more dopaminergic so maybe their dopamine levels are higher and that goes back to what we said if your dopamine levels are lower you're going to be less seeking and less uh inclined to get out there and see what's out there and be curious and i always think mark that's really important to understand when you work in an organization and you're going why is nobody checking out the future and looking for new scenario planning to to a possible threat that's out there in the future. It's because we're all different. And I actually think even if you bring that as a and this is a nice segue maybe to self organization, if you bring that to a species like ants, who are extremely successful species, who have evolved amazingly and survived much longer than human beings, if you bring that to bees, they all have a specific number of the population who are seekers and who will go, okay, you guys mind the mind the colony. My job is to go out there and see is there more is there more colonies? Is there better flowers? Is there more pollen? And I'll bring that information back. And I and I think when you look into nature and and as you have, you go looking for the source of consciousness. The patterns are almost always the same and including self organization, which and I thought about self organization when I was reading your this chapter, 
it, it's actually also entropy. It's like the 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 electrons or neurons or whatever will bash around until they find their little slot and then they'll settle. But then if they settle too long, they'll entropy. Absolutely. So so what you were saying about um, in an organization, you know, there are those who just want to keep everything the same and there are those who want to uh, seek uh, greener pastures and, and new opportunities. Uh, and what's needed is a balance. You know, and that goes back to where this conversation, this part of our conversation began when you spoke about you know, it's being tired and wanting to loaf. And you said, well, that's increasing my entropy. I said, no, it's increasing entropy in relation to one need, but decreasing entropy in relation to another. And the great task of life is to learn how to balance these things. How do you learn that? Well, that's what predictive modeling is all about. It's learning is just predicting. Uh, that, that, that's what learning is for. On the basis of what happened in the past, you know, what do I expect is going to happen in the future? So that, that question of balance. Uh, likewise, when you speak about uh, 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 complex self-organizing systems like bee colonies, you know, not everyone does the same in the colony. There's a specific task performed by one lot and another task performed by another lot. If they all did the same thing, it wouldn't be as good as this uh, uh, division of labor. And division of labor is not a concept unknown uh, in, 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 in business, you know, specialized departments and so on. So what you said at the end there about how their deep regularities, one finds that there's certain sort of principles, whether you're studying consciousness or bees or, 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 or business science, you know, you, you, there's certain kind of basic truths that you come upon. And when you do, you know that you've really understood it, you know, that because it, ultimately there are only so many principles, you know, that, 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 that underpin uh, the way that the universe works. They, uh, at 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 in Newton's day, uh, you know, it seemed pretty simple. Now, okay, it's not as simple as Newton thought, but it's still, you know, pretty straightforward. You know, the whole of quantum physics can be reduced to a, a, a few equations. You know, these are the deepest, deepest organizing principles. When you can link phenomena in any field to these deep principles, then you know you're getting to the essence of how they work, because ultimately every system has to obey these basic principles that govern the whole of nature and the whole, and, and the whole of the universe. Beautiful. Even even in our conversation, I'm I'm you're deepening my understanding, which I'm very grateful for. And also, I'm sure that's happening for many of our audience as well. And I, I just there's a few terms you, you told me to remind you and I know times against us about the mathematical term, I, I don't know whether you're thinking of Markov blankets or Claude Shannon, perhaps, but probability maybe. Um, but the other thing I thought was really useful was the term surprisal, because again, we talk about this often in, in the business literature and, and strategy literature is like, organizations have, uh, so they either exploit or explore. And that's seeking. And that's homeostasis as well. So you have a, a homeostatic organization, and it's it's always trying to, but in order to be homeostatic, it needs to constantly add energy but not everybody because it still needs to run the organization a and, balance uh, between explore and exploit that's what's required exactly and and then i i thought about something you said earlier on and you wrote about was you're you're giving a two-hour lecture your body has a priority of what it's doing first because i got need to do the lecture and then as soon as you finish the lecture you go oh i've needed to go to the toilet for the last hour but in your hierarchy the more important thing was to deliver the lecture. And that also goes to businesses. And that goes to each of us as well. And that's why even I was telling my son, he's 12, I was saying, you need to learn to prioritize, because <laughs> prioritization is so important for survival and thus homeostasis. So you were reminding me of a few concepts, and you had spoken a little earlier of self-organization. So I just want to make sure that our audience understands, first of all, the business of self-organization. Uh, when I was saying this is what living things do, as opposed to non-living things, um, I could have said it more simply, that this is what self-organizing systems do. Because living things are just a special form of self-organizing system. That, that globule of water that stays under the tap is self-organizing. In other words, it's doing something to remain, it's, it's maintain its own existence. Uh, the opposite is dissipation. So 
homeostasis is in the service of self-organization, in other words, in service of maintaining the existence of the system. The most basic thing that's required for a system to maintain itself is it has to draw a line uh, around what is me and what is not me. What is the system and what isn't the system? Uh, because if there isn't a boundary, then how do you how do you maintain the existence of that thing in, in relation to everything else, which is not part of the system, if you dissipate with that? So that boundary is the concept uh, that mathematically ex mathematically explains how boundaries work uh, is a concept called the mark of blanket. Since you mentioned it, I just want to explain what self-organization means and explain why uh, a self-organizing system in order to have self versus not self has to have a boundary and, and explain that word that you just used there. Which is the which is the concept of a mark of blanket. The blanket defines the set of things that are in the system, as opposed to the set of things which are outside of the system. And all, all of what we spoke about in terms of um, resisting entropy uh, and how homeostasis does that, uh, it it requires there to be a bounded system. And when I said that there's a certain amount of energy in every system, well, there needs to be a system within which you're measuring how much energy is there. And then you can see, is the energy being used efficiently or inefficiently in terms of trying to maintain that boundary? In other words, maintain the existence of the system. And, and the link, again, I mean, the concept of mark of blankets and self-organizing systems applies across this. The solar system is a self-organizing system. The whole planet is a self-organizing system. Uh, each nation state is a self-organizing system. This is a very... Very, very fundamental. Each cell is a self-organizing system, but each human being with our skin, uh, you know, this is where I end. This is where I begin. We're self-organizing systems. And, you know, if it sounds like such a massive overgeneralization as to be meaningless, uh, I'm afraid it's not meaningless. It is, it is fundamental. Why it sounds so, gen so generalized is because it is so generally applicable. It's what distinguishes between a thing that maintains its existence and a thing that dissipates. Now, I told you that in order for us to be able to maintain our existence, if we're going to be adaptive, you know, because things that are not adaptive, and I'm sorry to tell you, uh, to remind you rather, that bees have had a hard time of it recently because they've got certain fixed predictive models and the world suddenly changed, you know, and the world suddenly doesn't behave the way that their model predicts. And so, we're a little bit worried about bees. You know, are they going to be able to adapt? Uh, bees don't have brains like we do. Uh, they are a social. There's a the the brain of the bee is perhaps the brain of the whole of the whole group because you know of this division of labor that I was speaking about earlier. But still, it's not clear uh, that bee brains uh, like ours are able to say, okay, this isn't working. And you know what? None of my predictions uh, works. Now I've, I've got to come up with something entirely new. It's not, it's not clear that bees are capable of coming up with something entirely new. So again, I just wanted to get that in uh, in order to illustrate what feeling is for. Feeling is in order to be able to suck it and see, you know, okay, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't want to have to do it and die, and only then I know it didn't work. I want to know how is this going? Is this working or isn't this working? That's what feeling is for, and that's why feeling drives the whole business of uh, the, the, the law of effect that I spoke about earlier. I and my colleague, Jörg Pankseb, we renamed it the law of affect. In other words, it's a law that is, that is regulated by feeling. And the law of effect is a law of learning. So learning is all, is all kind of like grounded in this business of feeling. And bees can learn within very narrow confines. There's certain kind of possibilities um, you know, we to, to be able to transcend those bounds and explore radically uncertain, radically unknown new new possibilities and adapt to them, you know, is a, is a, is a, is a, is an enormous an enormous advantage. So um, I told you that this business of learning is basically prediction. That's what learning is for. It's for predicting the future on the basis of the past. So learning, the brain is a prediction machine, as I said. And then, I, and then to come to the mathematics, by the way, speaking of very generalizable things, Galileo said the law of nature is written in the language of mathematics. You know, so this is the this, this deep abstractions 
you know, which apply across the board because they are such deep abstractions. They, they, are, they formalize just how nature works. So I said that what Friston and I did was to try to formalize the laws uh, that, 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 that describe uh, and prescribe uh, how this predictive brain works, the predictive brain in relation to feeling. Um, and then I said that there's a there's a, um, a, 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 a distinction I need to draw there, which I haven't yet drawn. I said that there's inefficient and efficient predictive models. Remember, uh, I, I said that free energy is quantified by how efficient or inefficient the predictions are. I hope you must nod if you remember that. You do. Okay, good. So that's the quantity, free energy, quantifies how well or badly the system is doing. And then I said it has to be divided across a number of categories, because remember, we have multiple needs. That's something that we've also discussed many times, but it's so, so, so important. So you can't just say, well, I need to meet my need to rest. I need to also meet my need to replenish my energy supplies. I've got to meet them both. So you have two categories, and so you have two different types of feeling and so on. Now, that the, these quantities, uh, which have to do with how much need, how much need I have is directly proportional to how efficient is my predictive model. Because if my if predictive model is efficient, I have less need. If it's inefficient, I have more need. So this free energy principle, which is the bedrock of this of, of Priston's work, which is what everything we're talking about today um, is, is, is grounded in, um, that quantity is so fundamental. The quantity of how much free energy is there factorized across the different categories of free energy. Now, the predictive model, which, which, which is directly correlated, as I said, with the amount of free energy, uh, I now need to draw a, a further division within the predictive model, which has got to do with confidence, which we've spoken about before. So uh, there's not just, you know, you need to have a prediction. It's also how confident am I in this prediction? Uh, and the more confident I am in the prediction, uh, the less confident I am about the errors. In other words, the less attention I pay to the errors. Uh, they, 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 they might just be noise. Uh, so, so, you know, I expect that this is going to happen. Okay, now that happens, now that happens, now the other thing happens. But on average, what I'm wanting to happen is what's happening. So how how wide the dispersion is around what I expected, that is that is a measure of confidence, and we call that measure precision. Uh, so the the the, the, the a, 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 a high uh, dispersion, a high variability, uh, is a low confidence, uh, is low precision. It's more noise. So the I, I just needed to introduce that quantity, um, the quantity of precision. Uh, it's not just how much free energy is there. In other words, uh, how inefficient is my predictive model? It's also uh, how much confidence do I have at each moment in time in the prediction in relation to the surprisal that you mentioned, which is the prediction error. Uh, you can't have every time something happens which you didn't expect, you change your entire, you know, imagine again the business that you were, the, the analogy to business that you were using all the time. Our prediction is, you know, this is a model that works. This is how we, we're profitable. Oh, it didn't work on Wednesday in Singapore. Okay, now we're throwing away, you know, our entire predictive model, and now we've got to we've got to rethink our entire business. It's no, that's a blip, you know. And but then if there are an increasing number of blips, no, it's not working in Thailand, not working in Japan, it's not working in Hong Kong. It's like, oh shit, this is a trend, you know. Now you have increasing confidence in the prediction error. And that gives you decreasing confidence in your prediction. Uh, and so that increases the chances that you're going to update your model. And what I'm saying, I hope, is absolute common sense. And anybody who's in any business will say, well, I know that. You know, what I'm saying is, yes, and that basic quantity, the quantity called precision, we can measure it in relation to how the brain works. Um, and it is... It is fundamental to how this whole predictive machine works. And we have come to understand it, or at least we are coming to understand it, because this is a quantity. It's something that you can measure. It's, we, so we can actually show, yes, we understand the mechanisms whereby learning works. We understand the mechanisms whereby choice works. We understand the mechanisms you know, whereby even something as ephemeral as feeling works. 
And uh, this is what's so exciting uh, about the current state of consciousness science. And if I may be so immodest as to say this, please remember all of this has happened or is happening because we recognize that consciousness is driven by the brainstem. And the brainstem is where these homeostats are and feelings are homeostatic. And that enabled us to see the whole bang shoot uh, in a way that we haven't been able to before. And, you know, this is why I wrote that book and why I called it The Hidden Spring, because I think, yeah, we have a source of the Nile. And, uh, and it's really exciting for the state of mental science, which has always been a kind of a, an embarrassment because it's got to do with subjectivity and it's, you know, it's not proper. You can't do proper science and subjectivity and uh, science should be objective and you can't quantify all of these things. We really are seeing a revolution in the field. That's why you can't shut me up. I love listening to I, I have so much more questions, but you have to go. And I just want to point the books behind me there at the Hidden Spring, the journey to the source of consciousness. It's, it's a brilliant read. And you can hear how excited Mark is there as well. It's it and you have, as you read it, you have these moments of, Oh, I, that's just a pattern that can be applied here or there or everywhere. It's great. Like even Markov's blanket, I was thinking about how a child in the terrible twos is really just trying to get a Markov's blanket around what what's the boundaries. And if it doesn't get the feedback from the parents to go, No, you can't do that. It, it feels uncomfortable. And I was thinking, well, that's just a child trying to get to a period of homeostasis. Animals do that, they urinate to create a boundary, and then they operate with inside the boundary. Uh, there, there's so many moments of that, and I kind of go, well, that's just that. And that's just that. And I think that's what's beautiful. And you've set us up beautifully, Mark, for where we're going next. But I, it really does come together. And, and I have to commend you on that, because I just don't think people read enough. And one of the fears when you have a book as as comprehensive as yours is that people don't continue on the journey for the dots to connect. And that's why I'm so grateful that you've done this show. Hopefully, people are still with us and have joined us on the journey for to be able to look back and go, ah, that's why he was talking about that. That's why the brainstem is so important. That's why feelings are so important and effect is so important, because they almost stimulate homeostasis again, or the need for homeostasis or the need to reduce free energy in the system. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's, um, it also you're saying every now and then you realize, oh, you know, so that's the same thing. And, you know, and, oh, I understand what's going on here. And this, here I have a glimpse of insight. You know, for me, it happens also with my own experience of my own life, you know, that I, 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 I now experience, I'm, it's even something, as I keep on saying, is ephemeral is feeling. Once you realize it's homeostatic, you see all the time, oh, I see. So this feels good because of that. And this feels bad because of that. And the more that you see that, that you understand that, you know, the more you're a master of your own mental house. And the, the less surprisal there is, the more, the more of a predictive model you have that uh, prevents uh, the universe from biting you in the butt. Amen, brother. It's a great way to finish. Mark, always a pleasure. Author of The Hidden Spring, Mark Soames, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Aiden. Till next time.